chapter 1, where the study will primarily be coming from this evening. We're looking at uh, some of the minor prophets that prophesied during the same time as Ezekiel. As we've been studying through Ezekiel in the Sunday morning auditorium class, I thought it'd be good to to talk a little bit more about these minor prophets and and get to know them a little bit better because they're prophesying at essentially the same time. So a lot of the historical background that that we realize and that we're thinking about during class, uh, we can use to apply to this and, and learn more from it. Uh, Habakkuk is a very interesting prophet, uh, not only because we just don't know much about him, but because of the nature of his prophecy. As we looked at last time, uh, Habakkuk cries to God for help and God answers him. Uh, in Habakkuk, what we actually have is a dialogue between the prophet and God, and that makes up the whole book, is a dialogue where Habakkuk talks to God, God responds to Habakkuk, Habakkuk talks to God again, God responds again, and then Habakkuk writes a song. Uh, so tonight what I want to do is look at the second uh, dialogue. In the first dialogue, uh, Habakkuk has voiced his cry to God for help. He sees violence. He sees injustice everywhere, and he wonders where God's at, why why God hasn't handled this. Judah is a mess, and there's wickedness abounding. The law is paralyzed, and and, and unrighteousness is going rampant. So what what are you going to do, God? Why aren't you responding? Why aren't you doing anything? And God simply responds with, I see everything that's going on. I hear it all. And I'm raising up something that you would not believe if I told you. I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And they're going to wipe out the nations of the earth as they sweep across the earth. Now that that question, of course, uh, doesn't solve all of Habakkuk's problems. Uh, You imagine God saying, you know, I'm going to wipe out your nation with another nation that's that's really evil as well, it doesn't really solve all of your problems, right? You still are going to be ruled over by a wicked nation. And that's what we see with Habakkuk. He's not really happy with the response from God. Look at uh, verse 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? This response of Habakkuk up until this point is showing us that God uh, that Habakkuk recognizes who God is, right? There's there's a recognition of who God is. There's a there's a love for God and and re- realizing he is good, he is honorable, he is holy. Uh you know, we he's trusting in God, we will live, but there's also at the end this sense of how could you do this? You know, I know who you are, God. I know your nature. I know your character. But what you're telling me doesn't really make sense. It doesn't help me with this problem that I'm having of the righteous being put into great suffering and having to deal with wickedness. 
what Habakkuk sees is that this is a wicked nation that's going to rise up and swallow up a nation more righteous than they are. And this doesn't make sense to him. He believes that God is good, but how could he raise up another wicked nation? It doesn't make sense. Israel is supposed to be the world power. That was what was promised to David if they would remain faithful. They've been unfaithful, so God rose up. Assyria, they've been the world power for a long time now. And now it seemed like the tide is shifting. Judah's going to come back into power. Everything's going to be great. But there's wickedness everywhere. And Habakkuk is told by God, no, no, no. It's not Israel that's going to raise up. It's going to be Babylon that's going to raise up. And they're pretty much going to wipe out Judah for all the evil that they've done. So Habakkuk is confused. What is God doing? How is it that God could could do this? For hundreds of years they've been living under the rule of an evil kingdom of Assyria and now it seems like for hundreds of years more Babylon is going to rule and we find out it's only 70 years but it seems like they're going to be the new world power and nothing's really going to get fixed. How can this be for the good of mankind? If you keep reading in verses 14 through 17 he gives us an illustration. He says... You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich." Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Notice the emphasis Habakkuk puts on this. Is he to continue mercilessly killing the nations forever? And he uses this illustration of fish, right? Mankind are like fish or like crawling things that are gathered up by Babylon in a net. And whenever they gather them up, They empty it out and they go back for more. Continually. Punishing and and ruthlessly killing mankind like they're a bunch of fish. And what does he do? He sacrifices to his net. He thinks it's because of his net that he has all this success. Whenever in fact it's God. And not only that, he doesn't recognize who God is. You see how none of this really makes any sense for God to be working and creating all of this because it doesn't glorify His name. It doesn't fix the problem that Israel is supposed to be a shining light for the nations. So what is God doing? Habakkuk's complaint is that this new situation is not going to be better than the current situation. In fact, it seems it's going to be much worse Everything seems backward about this. Don't we wonder some of the same kinds of things? What is God really doing? How is it that that God allows for a nation that was a Christian nation to fall so far? And to continually fall and to continually become more and more immoral? How is it that wicked nations seem to be prospering and they seem to be uh, gaining steam and momentum 
in society, we see the same kinds of things. We see people who are wicked who succeed in their wickedness, while righteous people don't succeed. In fact, they suffer great harm. Uh, You know, we might think, if I could be God for a day, I would fix everything. You know, all these people who are doing evil, I would just wipe them out. I mean, there's no reason to keep them around, really, right? I mean, just wipe them out. And every time somebody sins, I'm going to make sure that they get punishment for that sin. We kind of treat it like we might treat our children, right? You've got to attack. As soon as they do something wrong, you've got to get them and make sure they know you don't do that again. We might think, why doesn't God act that way? Why is evil allowed to continue in the way that it's allowed to continue? When we're raising children, it's a little different than adults, right? Uh, Adults don't really respond to spankings that well. I don't know if you've tried that. I haven't. Uh, But it doesn't really work. Uh, You know, they they have a desire that they will pursue uh, regardless of what you think or what you want. But there's still evil persisting in society, there's, there's evil everywhere. And if God is good, why is there evil? This question of Habakkuk is a really good question. He's wondering about this. Why is it that evil is continually going on? We all would desire to, to go out in public without any fear of someone shooting our family or shooting us. We would love to be able to let our kids play in neighborhoods without fear of something bad happening to them. We would love to not worry about police brutality or anything like that. That only happens to the really bad people. And if a, a bad guy comes in with a gun, you know, he, God's going to make it to where he only shoots the really bad guy who deserves it. That's not what happens, though. The righteous suffer along with the wicked in this life. So if God is good, why is there evil? Why does this happen? What is God really up to? God's first response doesn't help with this question. With all the evil that Habakkuk has been made to see in his life, God's first response doesn't really help him with the struggle of righteous people suffering and wicked people prospering. But let's think about God's second response. His second response does two things. And we're going to notice those things. Let's read uh, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God's first response to Habakkuk is that Judah is not more righteous. (laughs) The first thing that he says is, you can write down my first response. It's going to happen. Judah will be judged by the Babylonians. It will surely come. If it seems slow, wait for it. It's going to happen. I will judge Judah for the evil that they've done. They're not getting away with anything. And I've chosen to do it through the Babylonians, and I will do it through the Babylonians. It's going to happen. Write it down, Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk made a claim whenever he said a nation more wicked than them is going to kill them and they are somehow more righteous than the Babylonians. And God doesn't really care. God doesn't really care about how much more righteous Judah is than Babylon. God makes it clear here that those who sin will be punished. The judgment will come for Judah for their sin. He's not apologizing for what he said. He's not backing off of what he said because Habakkuk, oh, you make a really good point there. No. God is going to punish Judah for what they have done. They are proud. Their soul is upright. Their soul is not upright and they will get what they deserve. They're not getting away with anything. The second thing he does is seen in verses 5 through 20. And we're not going to read all of verses 5 through 20, but I think verse 5 kind of helps us understand what he does through that whole section. So let's read verse 5 together. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. You notice how he doesn't really point to Babylon. He doesn't say Babylon will be punished as well and call them out. What does he say? He says, wine is a traitor. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor. Moreover, Habakkuk, that was about the first response that you had a problem with. Judah's not righteous. Moreover, Habakkuk, about your second response and how evil and wicked Babylon is. Wine is a traitor. What does he mean by that? Wine is a traitor. Think about wine as something that people indulge in, right? It makes them feel good. It makes them feel uh, some sense of pleasure and momentary uh, happiness, right? But he says it's a traitor. It's giving you fulfillment, but not really. And it's actually betraying you. It's a traitor against you. It's making you think everything is good, when it's really not. The rest of the verse says the same kinds of things. An arrogant man who is never at rest. It's wine is an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. Now you think about what that says in, in conjunction with what Habakkuk said. That illustration, right? He gathers up the fish like nets and he empties it and he goes after more. The way he's describing Babylon is that they just are constantly pursuing more and more from the nations that they destroy. They never have enough. And what God says in response is, that's a traitor, What they're doing is betraying them. They think they're finding great success, but they never have enough. They never have satisfaction. No matter how much they get, no matter how much evil they do in order to gain great things, they're never feeling satisfied with what they have. No matter how much junk they pile up, how successful they seem like they are, I have a punishment for them. 
And their punishment is that wine will betray them. They're going to feel empty inside. They're never going to have enough. They're never going to feel content. They're never going to feel satisfied with what they have. After this, he gives five woes. And this is a taunt that the nations will speak against Babylon. As they turn their back on Babylon, they will speak against Babylon. These five woes. And all five of the woes have the same ideas as what we find in verse 5. Wine is a traitor and... They'll keep adding to themselves, but they'll never have enough. I'd like to look at two of the verses, though. Verse 12 and 13. He says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? God gives us in that small text right there kind of a breakdown of what's really going on. What does Judah see? Babylon succeeding. Look at them. They're just adding to their wealth. And they're being destructive while they do it. And they're shedding all kinds of blood and just robbing and stealing. And they're getting everything. They're getting the good end of the deal. But God says, no, they're not. In fact, I'm allowing this to go on as their punishment. (laughs) Their craving for more and more is from me. It is from the Lord that these things are happening, that they are trying to get more and more, thinking that that's going to satisfy their, their unquenchable thirst for more. But they're laboring merely for fire. Everything that they're getting for themselves is worth nothing. It's it's all going to be burned up in the end. It's not going to give them any kind of lasting satisfaction. They're laboring for nothing. And this is the judgment that God has against Babylon. They will suffer, but it will be in a way that is very different from the way that Judah is suffering. Judah's having everything taken away from them. But Babylon's suffering is being given everything to the point where they find no satisfaction in any of it. Isn't this what we see all over the place? We're the most wealthy nation in existence, right? <laughs> Ever. And we have people depressed all over the place. People committing suicide all over the place. They don't have enough. They're not finding enough in the stuff that they have. It doesn't fulfill them. It doesn't make them feel good. The evil that they're doing to gain all of these things is not satisfying their real needs. Wine is a traitor for them. And they're suffering, really. They're living a miserable life. They're laboring merely for fire. It's like a Twilight Zone episode where, uh, you know, a guy's just desperately trying to find his way out of a house. But every door just leads to another room. There's nothing there. and There's no way out. There's no real reason for existing. And that's what they're experiencing. Nothing really 
matters. So even though it looks like Babylon is getting away with everything, they are in fact getting away with nothing. They're receiving a judgment as well. It's just a different kind of judgment than what Judah is receiving. God said this as well in Romans chapter 1. He said that God's going to give them up to their desires and their passions so that, you know, in the end they're going to be ashamed because they're not really getting any fulfillment from any of these things. He gives them over to their lusts and their passions. Whenever they reject Him, He judges them, but in a different way. But also, did you notice what was said back in verse 4. This is that key text of Habakkuk. In the midst of God's second response and what God says about judging Judah and judging Babylon, He gives a glimmer of hope. And it seems like this is in response to what Habakkuk said, uh, we will surely live, we shall not die. God says the righteous will live By his faith. God makes a promise. God has delivered the promise of judgment. He's going to judge the wicked. In one way or another, he's going to bring judgment against the wicked. But he also delivers a promise that's consistent with all his promises that he will save the righteous. The righteous will live by his faith. God will be faithful to those who have faith. In Him, He will save them from the judgment and have compassion on them. Why? Because as we've seen in our class and as we've been seeing in in all of our studies, that's who God is. He promises judgment and He delivers. No one ever gets away with anything. It may seem like they are, but they're really not. And those who are righteous, who live by faith, will live. He always wants to be merciful. He always wants to show steadfast love to thousands of those who will have faith in Him. Because that's who He is. That's who He's always been. Since the beginning of creation, that's who He was, that's who He is. All the way Mount Sinai, all the way to this judgment, all the way to the New Testament. That's who He's always been. You remember, Hebrews 11 tells us about all these people who have experienced this very thing. They trusted in God, and God saved them. Yet Noah, why did Noah build an ark? Because he trusted in God's promises. You have Daniel. Why did Daniel eat of the vegetables to to avoid the unclean meats? Because he trusted in God. He entered into the lion's den and his friends entered into the furnace because they trusted in God. Why did Rahab allow the spies to come in? Because she trusted in God. They risked everything because they trusted in God. They had faith that He would do the things that He said He was going to do. So the Hebrew writer points us to all of these examples in chapter 11. And then whenever he gets to chapter 12, he points to the author and the perfecter of our faith, to Jesus Himself. Because He is the one who shows us 
that trust in God by entrusting himself to God completely on the cross. He showed that he knew God would be faithful to his promises. That he would deliver the things that he has promised since the beginning of time. That he has shown himself over and over again. He will be faithful to. So he trusted in him. And he was not betrayed. None of these people were ever betrayed by that trust. Isn't that amazing? That we have all of these examples for us of God being faithful to His people. To those who trust in Him, they find salvation. They find the hope that they had and they were not put to shame. The basis for Hebrews chapter 11 is found in Hebrews chapter 10. You go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and you start reading in verse 36, you'll see why the whole letter is written. This is why the whole letter is written. For you have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. This text in Hebrews, that's the basis for all of the examples in chapter 11, that's the basis for the whole book of Hebrews, which is loaded full of great stuff, is based on Habakkuk. The Hebrew writer uses Habakkuk's words as a basis for what the Hebrew Christians need to do and what all Christians everywhere need to do. Entrust your soul to God. Endure whatever suffering you have to go through. You look at all these examples in Hebrews 11. Them suffering, great sufferings in their life. God allows the wickedness to go on. And they live by faith in Him. That He will deliver the promises that He's made. Even to the point of death. Because they know that God will save. In the end. So the Hebrew writer writes this whole letter. To say Habakkuk was told what we need to know. The righteous person will be saved by his faith. Therefore, we need to endure great suffering. God's not going to make all the suffering go away for the righteous. And He's not going to wipe out all the wicked. He's going to be glorified by us having faith that He will deliver the promises that He has made. We can't shrink back now that we know how God is, what God acts like, and and His faithfulness to His Word, and what He's promised. So we see in this that that's God's intention for us. What Habakkuk wrote and what the Hebrew writer uses from Habakkuk is supposed to encourage us to live faithfully even when we see injustice going on all around us in the world. Since the righteous always suffer, we need to endure the suffering that we have in our lives. Whatever it is. If someone at work abuses us and and takes advantage of us, if someone mistreats us, if, if the person who cheats finds success and we don't, we endure. 
We have faith in promises that are greater than the things that people around us are laboring for. They're laboring merely for fire. But we're laboring for something much, much more. We're laboring for the food that never perishes. The treasures are being stored up in heaven instead of on earth. And that's what our desire needs to be. We can trust that God will deliver the judgment to those who betray Him and rebel against Him. Habakkuk makes that very clear. This is, this is the most important and most critical idea in Scripture is that God is going to punish those who sin and God is going to save those who trust in God, who entrust their lives to God. That's what God, that's who God is. That's what God wants to do. So we can't shrink back now. We can't shrink back. We know who God is. We know what He's done. We know what He promises to do and how He has acted in the past. He is consistently faithful to all that He says. How could we turn away from that God? How could we rebel against Him? Instead, we must show faith in God's faithfulness. We must trust Him. Isn't that what he's asking Habakkuk to do in saying this? Notice, God doesn't really answer Habakkuk's question. <laughs> he doesn't just come out and say, Oh yeah, in 70 years I'm going to bring judgment against the Babylonians too, and they're, they're going to they're gonna suffer too in that way. No, he just says, No, what they're doing is really not helping them at all. You think they're finding success, but they're really not. You trust me. You can trust me. I deliver. I give you what you really need. You can trust me. So are we trusting God? Do we put our faith in Him? Do we put our trust in Him? That He will deliver the things that He's promised? Are we willing to make sacrifices in our lives of of the things that we might enjoy that are sinful that we need to put away? Are we willing to take risks in our lives? Like these great men of faith in Hebrews 11. Are we willing to live for God and lay our lives on the line in service to Him with faith that He will deliver the things that He's promised? This is the message of Habakkuk, the message of God to Habakkuk. I think we need to make sure we remember these things and come back to these things as as the New Testament writers did. Put our faith in God and trust in Him. If anybody here has not done that, if you haven't put your faith in God and trusted in Him, Your life. He wants you to do that. You can make that change. Please don't wait. Please come as we...